0: Hey, Pastor Josh here. Thanks so much for watching our videos. If you'd like more information about Legacy City Church, you can go to LegacyCityChurch.com. Please don't forget to like, subscribe, and hit the bell below. God bless you. We are in Matthew chapter 5 in our Bibles. Matthew chapter 5, if you want to turn there, we've been working through a series I have titled Jesus Worldview, where we get to look through the eyes of Christ, and to see what he was up to, what he was doing, how he views society, how he views life, how he views family, how he views religion, how he views the relationship with God. And really, we get to see everything through his eyes. That's what the Gospels are all about. We are in the Gospel of Matthew, and the title of the message today is, Blessed Are the Lowly. This is sermon number eight in our series together. And it has been a joy to walk through this together. I heard of a story of a Fiat, you know, 500 little car pulled up alongside a Rolls Royce at a traffic light. He says to the Rolls Royce, Do you have a car phone? And the Rolls Royce driver says, Of course I do. What do you think I am? You know, this is a Rolls Royce. Well, do you have a fax machine in there? The Fiat says, and the driver of the Rolls Royce says, I have that too. And the driver of the Fiat says, well, do you have a double bed in the trunk? The Fiat driver wanted to know, you know, he pressed him on it and embarrassed the Rolls Royce driver. He says, forget this. And he speeds off that afternoon. He ordered a mechanic to install a double bed in the trunk of the Rolls Royce because he had to have it. A week later, the Rolls Royce driver passed the same Fiat 500 parked on the side of the road. With the back windows fogged up and steam pouring, steam pouring out of the Fiat 500, the arrogant driver pulls over and gets out of the Rolls Royce and bangs on the Fiat back window until the driver sticks his head out. He says, hey, I wanted to tell you that I have a double bed installed in my Rolls Royce now. And the Fiat driver, unimpressed, he says, you got me out of the shower to tell me that? Uh, he was taking a shower in his fiat. OK, if you didn't get it. People aren't getting these jokes sometimes when I tell them, so I have to clarify. No, I, I hope it's, it's registering. Uh, "Blessed are the lowly," our sermon title today. Today we start the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest Sermon ever preached. Talk about Jesus' worldview. We get a nice, clear view of his teachings on so many topics we get a clear picture of the view on li- Jesus view on life and the kingdom of God who is the sermon on the mount for it is for Jesus disciples for Christians it was preached to them in that day on that day to live out and to continue to teach it and to live it out after he was gone from the earth that's what Jesus was doing he was imparting a sermon to them all of his teachings and he desired for them to start living that out and to continue living that, that out. When Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew 28, go and make disciples of all nations, baptize them and teach them to observe what I commanded you. He is referring to the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is a great breakdown of his new covenant for us to love one another as he has loved us. The Sermon on the Mount is the perfect picture of, Of the kingdom of God, what it looks like to live in his kingdom, bring his kingdom, move in his kingdom on earth, living on earth as it is in heaven, the way Jesus lived and the way his people also live. It is not so much live like this and you will be a Christian. No, it is. This is the way Christians are meant to live. This is the way Christians live, period. So we don't live this way to achieve A relationship with God. We live this way because we have a relationship with God. Dr. Lloyd-Jones regarded himself primarily as an evangelist, but he said this, the world today is looking for and desperately needs true Christians. I am never tired of saying that. What the church needs to do is not to organize evangelistic campaigns to attract outside people, but to begin herself to live the Christian life. If she did that, men and women would be crawling into our building. They would say, what is the secret of this? Dr. Lloyd-Jones, again, an evangelist himself, who probably would preach to the masses and do different things to minister to them, but he said the primary way we evangelize our world around us is by living out the Sermon on the Mount. Why? Because we're Christians. We don't do it to become a Christian. We do it because we are Christians. Listen, it is wrong to ask anyone who is not a Christian to live the Sermon on the Mount. It is impossible. And second, it doesn't make sense. The Sermon on the Mount is full, the full embodiment of how Christ taught us to live. Those Christians who are Christ's followers will actually walk in these things. And no one else should attempt apart from the Spirit of God. Romans 8.11 says, The Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. And just as God raised Christ from the dead, He will give life to your mortal bodies by the same Spirit living within you. He will give you life. And that life is a life lived for Christ. When the Spirit of God comes and lives in you, you are resurrected to live a new life, a new way. It is to walk in the ways of Christ. We are driven and pulled, compelled to live in these ways. That's why they register in our hearts when we read them. We are in Matthew chapter five today. We're gonna read verses one through five. Um, We'll we'll take this in two sections. Um, If you weren't with us before, I actually taught through the Sermon on the Mount and I broke down every single phrase um, and spent almost an entire sermon on each uh, phrase, beatitude that Jesus points out. And so if you'd like to hear a more in-depth study on that, you can go back to our YouTube channel. And all of it is there under a series titled, The Greatest Sermon Ever Preached. But today we're going to cover uh, five verses together and uh, three of these Beatitudes. And so let's read the text together. If you'd like to stand for the reading of God's Word, you can do so. We do so to pay honor to Him. Remember whose Word we are reading. Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 1, it says, Seeing the crowds, He went up on the mountain, and when He sat down, His disciples came to Him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. And we thank you, Jesus, for your perspective, for your truth a contrary perspective to that of the world, but we thank You that You help us navigate the world around us, You help us understand it, and You help us to cut through it with right living. Not just for morality's sake, Lord, but we live to please You. We live to shine for You. We live to see lives changed. Please, Lord, I ask that as we study these things, as we study Your sermon, As we break this down, I ask that you would please open our eyes, that real transformation would take place in our hearts, and that we would become even more lowly, just as you were. Please help us to find this gift. Please impart this to us, we ask. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Jesus preaching this sermon is basically from chapter 5 to chapter 7, and he preaches the entire sermon in one setting. Now, you will see pastors uh, preach like 20 sermons or 30 sermons over um, just these two chapters. But this is actually just one sermon. Jesus stands up or sits down, it says, on the mountain and teaches this in one setting. He just sits down and starts talking to them. Maybe it was an hour, maybe it was two hours, I don't know. But he just teaches them this in one setting. And it says there in verse 1, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he opens his mouth, and he taught them. I love this picture of the Lord. He goes up on the mountainside, and right there in the Galilee, and I can actually see the hills where he probably taught, where they believe that he taught. And there. Um, it's not a very high mountain. It's not like uh, going up to Big Bear up to Mammoth. No, no, it's more like um, the Rolling Hills or, or it's more like the Hollywood Hills here. Yes, yeah, just walking up into the hills and to sit there on the side of the hill and people come out and sit on the side of the hill and hear him uh, teach. So he opens here ministering to them. It starts in chapter 5 and he closes and it ends in Matthew 7 verse 28. When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teachings for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. This is a very important thing. After he finishes teaching, the people's minds are blown. They're astonished at his teaching because he spoke as one who had authority. Jesus said really, really wild things. I mean, you can't say the things that Jesus said. Um, he, he says things like, um, if you do this, um, basically, this will happen to you in heaven. Um, if you do this, your reward will be in eternity. If you do these things, he spoke as if he was the authority on the, mat, on the matter. And he, uh, he obviously said he could forgive sin. He obviously would walk around declaring things over people. He declared to be one with his own father, he, you know, with, with God the Father. He... He made claims that you just don't make, and he spoke with such a way um, that the teachers of that day did not. You see, the teachers were not speaking as if they were the authority on the matter. They realized that God was the authority on the matter, and they were just to teach the people. Jesus shows up and says, actually, I'm God, and I'm the one who wrote this thing, and let me tell you what it really means. And he would undermine the scribes and the Pharisees who were teaching wrong. And so, again, he was the authority on the matter, and he spoke in such a way as if he had come from heaven, because he did. And I can't imagine being able to sit down and just listen to Jesus talk. It's literally sitting down with God and listening to him talk about the universe. And you're like, okay, uh, he knows it all, I don't know anything. They were astonished, for he was teaching them as one who had authority. The flyover of this sermon looks like this. Verses 3 to 16 in chapter 5 are the general theme of a Christian. Broad statements are made about the Christian. The rest of the sermon is particular aspects about the Christian's life and their conduct. So this is more general, verses 3 to 16. And then verses 17 to 48 in chapter 5, we see the Christian facing the law of God and its demands. This section shows his righteousness then the christian relationship towards murder adultery divorce how christians should speak how whether or not they should retaliate self-defense and their attitude towards their neighbor fast forward chapter six shows us the christian living his life in the presence of god dependent on him submission to him The Christian and God as his father. Chapter 7 shows us the Christian who always lives under the judgment and fear of God. Knowing that he is the judge, he is God Almighty. Not forgetting that. So this is Jesus' sermon. It's broken down kind of into three, four sections. Lloyd-Jones said the Sermon on the Mount is to be looked at as a description of character not a code of ethics and morals. Um, Again, a description of character, not a code of ethics and morals. We're going to dive into this a bit more, but a lot of times people look at it as rules and regulations or living out morality. The atheist can do this. But a code or a, I'm sorry, a a description or a deep um, conviction of character is different because this person... From within their heart beats to live for God's glory. And you place them in any situation, a thousand different situations, and they know what to do. They know the right thing to do. Why? Because not because they're following a rule book they have memorized, no, no, because they have the Spirit of God living in them that leads them, convicts them, and directs them how to walk with God. I haven't fully tested this phrase, but I like to call it the law of grace. The law of grace. Which means it is clear we are no longer under the law to keep it out of obligation, but we do keep the law and more out of reciprocation. We keep it because of what God has blessed us with. We keep it because of his love for us. We keep it because of all that he has done. Out of gratitude and thankfulness, we obey God because we know it is the way he intended for us to live. It is the correct way to live. It brings glory to God and it brings life to our lives. Because he has done so much for us, we love to obey him and, and respond to his love correctly. The law of grace, the practical things that Jesus talks about are a new law that we live by. But it is not just rules set there that you act on every time the situation meets the rule. Let me explain. It is a guideline that should move us to live more like the Lord Jesus, more to the way he intended for us to live. Jesus gets, again, to the heart. He gets below the rule keepers, the rule keeper. He gets below them. He gets into their heart and he is looking at motive, not just that you kept some rules. It is the difference between the letter of the law and the spirit of that law. Here's a good picture. This is the law of grace. The letter of the law says, never to push your sister down, you tell your son. Son, don't push your sister to the ground ever, okay? Don't you ever do that again, okay? Thank you, son, don't do that. That is the letter of the law that has written that down. Thou shall not push sister down, letter of the law. The next day, they're playing with some friends and one of the friends is going very fast on his bike and loses control. And your son sees that the friend on the bike is going to crash right into his sister. He runs over and he pushes her to the ground out of the way and the bike misses her. Question, did your son sin because he disobeyed your rule? Is push, in pushing his sister, no, of course not. He broke the letter of the law, but he kept the spirit of the law. What was the purpose of this law? It was not to see his sister be hurt. And that's why dad put it there in the first place. He doesn't want his daughter, he doesn't want the boy's sister hurt. He wanted him to do the right thing and not hurt his sister. And the boy actually did the right thing by pushing his sister out of the way so she didn't get hurt by the bike. Now you see he kept the law perfect. That is a perfect keeping of the law for watch this. If the son did not push his sister out of the way, when he knew that he could, he knew the right thing to do and did not do it to him. That is sin. Dad would have ran up and said, son, why didn't you push your sister out of the way? And the boy would have said, dad, you told me not thou shall not push down my sister. Son, you don't understand the law. You don't understand the spirit of it. You don't understand the heart of it. And this is the war with the religious and the true believer. This is the war with the self-righteous and the convicted sinner. Why keep all the rules? Not exactly. No, I really do. I have never murdered anybody but you murder your brother in your heart every day. Wow. So it has to do with the heart above the letter of the law. Yes, exactly. The Pharisees were always yelling at Jesus and his disciples. You broke the law of Moses, Jesus. Your disciples broke the law of Moses. And Jesus is like, no, we didn't. We have kept the spirit of it, which is what God is looking for always. Jesus would say to the Pharisee over and over, You act like you keep the Sabbath on the surface, but you actually don't. You act like you keep the law by not murdering, but you actually don't. You act like you don't commit adultery, but you actually are. You do this exterior stuff, but in your heart, God sees. God wants to know what is the motive. This was never about keeping rules. It has always been about where your heart is. What is really going on inside? Jesus gives us rules and guidelines because we have such sinful hearts always trying to find any way to keep the law without obeying God. We Let me say that again. We love to keep the law without obeying God. How can I do that? It is by not helping your sister. You see... We love on the surface to say self-righteous. I kept the law. But we hate to deal with the heart, the real matter of what's going on inside and go to our Father and say, Lord, what, what am I doing? What am I doing wrong? Where have I missed it? Family, going to church outwardly, but not inwardly. Why are you going to church? Praying outwardly, but nothing is happening inwardly. Obedience outwardly, but it's not worship to God inwardly. It's checking boxes for you, serving outwardly, but grumbling inwardly, pure outwardly, but lustful inwardly, nice on the outside, mean on the inside, smile on the surface, but hate gossip and tear down on the inside. This is why the Sermon on the Mount is so important. Jesus describes the person who has actually been resurrected on the inside and is living the spirit of the law for his glory, not their own glory. Not exterior of the law, the the hollow letter of the law. Well, I did it right. You see, God sees through all this stuff. God was not impressed with the religious keeping the letter of the law and he's not impressed with it now. He wants the heart. I cannot say this enough. God loves a genuine heart more than he loved. Genuine, honest heart more than he loves. You checked all these exterior laws, but your heart is all messed up. He wants this more. And when this is right, it actually produces a beautiful exterior, not a fake religious one. We can only maintain this for so long and then it crumbles, but we got to start with honesty and build from that. Another picture is like a musician, someone playing Moonlight Sonata by Beethoven. They may play all the notes perfectly, make no mistakes at all, but completely miss the piece of music. No conviction in the song. It's mechanical. There is no, emotion pull, no no emotional pull that lures you in, no passion in the playing. Might as well have had a robot play it for us because there's nothing behind the execution of the notes. Anyone can play perfect notes with enough practice, but where's the passion? Where's that emotional pull, that grit that musicians understand? That actually draws you into a song when you hear them play or you hear them sing. It's something in the voice. It's something in the hands. It's There's something else there. It's a deeper passion. You feel that. It's the same thing with Christ. We're just doing mechanical exterior things to make everybody think we're Christians. Or is there a real passion and pull on the inside to bring God glory with the life that we live? How do we live as Christians? Are we mundane robots keeping rules and laws? Or are we living the calling of our lives? Is there fire in our bones for God? Do we burn to live for Him? That's the question we need to be asking. Church, why are we here? What is the motive for even showing up here digitally on Sunday? What's the motive? Why? Why tune in? Is it to worship God and to fellowship with Him and to be ministered to and built up? Is that the conviction within? What is our motive? Daily devotionals, why do you do them? Mechanical checkbox, make you feel good about yourself. Lord, I want to grow. Help me. I need help. Giving. Why do you give? To make yourself feel good or because you're passionate about it. Because you want to be generous. You desire to give cheerfully. You realize what the Lord has blessed you with. You say, man, I can't help it. I want to give. There is a war between the law and grace. Should I do this because I have to? Or should I do this because I want to? Do I do this because I want to? The law of grace, which means it is clear we are no longer under the law to keep it out of obligation. But we do keep the law more and more out of reciprocation. We we just want to bless the Lord with our lives. I want to bless the Lord. I don't want my little Eden to obey me outwardly, but miss the point inwardly. I want her to listen to dad because she loves me and understands my motive for her. Even if she's mad about it in the moment, she says, you know what? I love my dad and long-term I think he knows best for me and I know it's right and good for me to walk in obedience to him because she wants to honor and please her parents because she knows how deeply we love and care for her. I want real genuine motive and I'm going to fight for that. I don't want exterior boxes being checked but then nothing happening on the inside. I'm not satisfied as a dad. And our Father in Heaven wants way more than I would ever want or desire, and He cares way deeper than I ever would. He loves you. He loves me. He wants our hearts to walk in step with Him. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. One scripture, and we're going to dive into these three verses together. Psalm 51, verse 16 and 17. David, the psalmist, the man after God's own heart. He wrote this, for you do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You take no pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise." David gets it. He says, Lord, I realize it's not about killing animals. Making sacrifices, because people are doing this everywhere. They." live in sin walk over with the animal make the sacrifice and then just keep on living did the sacrifice meant nothing to them thus it means nothing to you what do you really want if you're going to make a sacrifice god you really want a broken and contrite spirit before you that you will not despise someone who comes to the lord with a broken spirit and offers that offering that is what god sees this is a spirit of of all Jesus' teaching. He's cutting back the surface to reveal the heart and the life of a true Christian. Let's walk verse by verse through this sermon together. What do you say? And if you want the in-depth version, you can go back to YouTube and check all that out. But we are going to walk through it in kind of an overall view. It says, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, verse 1, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Our first beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Point number one, if you're taking notes today, the lowly realize they are spiritually bankrupt. The lowly realize they are spiritually bankrupt. We have the word blessed show up over and over and over in our text. This is simply the word happy blessed happy happy is the one we see blessed or happy are the poor in spirit this word poor here in the text is reduced to the word beggary begging asking alms the poor so blessed or happy is the beggar spiritually the beggar spiritually it is Not surprising, this is the first of the Beatitudes, because if you don't get this one right, you can't get any of them right. This is the key to all the Beatitudes. Happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Watch this. You can't be saved without this one. This is the way to salvation. Only the poor in spirit will go to heaven. This person is the one who begs God to save them. Because they recognize they will not be saved unless God saves them. They are spiritually poor. They are spiritually broke. They are spiritually bankrupt. Their account is empty. There is nothing we can do to get to heaven. We don't have enough money spiritually to get there. Spiritually bankrupt. My bank account is empty spiritually. I don't know how to pay for this. I don't know how I'm going to get in. There's no way I can. And so what do you got to do? you got to go to the one who owns the place and beg him to let you in. This is the foundation of salvation. If a person does not realize their need for God, they will never get to heaven. A person who thinks they can earn their way, a person who thinks they can pay their way, A person who thinks they can do something to get to heaven does not understand salvation. The gospel message tells us very, very clearly that we are bankrupt spiritually and we have nothing to bring to God. And the only way we are to get to heaven in a relationship with Him is to call out to Him to pay our way, to save us, to let us in, to beg Him, beg, beggar, poor, bankrupt. The poor in spirit, begging for alms. Father, please forgive me of my spiritual bankruptcy. Forgive me of my sin. Cleanse me and allow me to come into heaven in relationship with you forever. If you don't see your need for God, you will never make it to heaven. And that is the problem. A lot of people say, I don't need God. I don't need heaven. I don't need salvation. Many worship and celebrate the great John Lennon. Imagine there's no heaven. Really? Imagine the tune, the melody catches our ears oh so well, but the lyrics, the darkest on the planet. Imagine there's no God, imagine there's no heaven. This is really, really sad. And he is trying to convince the listener to think that they don't need to be dependent on God. They don't need him for anything. He's not even there. Let's just imagine that. And let's live like there's no God. That's scary. The Bible tells us in Ephesians 2.8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God understanding this is the key to life we are fully dependent on God for everything we must acknowledge that he is we must acknowledge that he is the gatekeeper to heaven we must acknowledge that we can do nothing to get there and as soon as we get there and realize we are nothing apart from Kim you have made the first step realizing you're bankrupt spiritually and you need God to fill that account You are fully dependent on Him. It is the first step into relationship with Him. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. I bring nothing, nothing to this relationship. I just grab onto the cross and say, God save me, please. All I have brought is sin and destruction. I need you. I always say, you know, going into business with God is like going into business with like Jeff Bezos or something like the, whoever the richest is on the planet, you know, it's like, Hey, uh, you want to do a business deal together? You're like, really? You want to do one with me? Yeah. I I do one with you. Really? He's like, yeah. You know what? What are you going to bring to the table? Uh, I'm going to bring like $80 billion. What do you say? How about let's do a hundred billion. Okay. I'll bring all that cash to back us and take care of everything. I got all kinds of systems in place. We'll make this business work. What do you got? Like, um, I got some chapstick. Uh, I got a piece of lint. Uh, I got, I think I got a dirty dime, you know, at the bottom of my car. I could bring that in. Um, I got nothing. I have nothing in comparison. Nothing. God shows up and takes care of the whole bill. Jesus truly paid it all on the cross. He paid enough. He paid it all to fill up that bank account and to welcome you into heaven. The acknowledgement of Him doing that, the faith in Him doing that, is the beginning of the Gospel. We have to see our need. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For what? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Only the poor in spirit. He became poor spiritually so that we could be rich spiritually in heaven long term. Praise God. What a blessing. Not only do we start here as believers in Christ, but we never leave this place. Blessed are the poor in spirit. We are to remain in this posture all the days of our lives. And those who do remain in this posture, that we are bankrupt without Him, are blessed. You will be happy if you remain fully dependent on God all the days. We don't need to walk around acting like we have it all together. We need to realize, I need God. I need thee every hour, O precious Lord. Every single hour I need thee. Verse 4, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. The next beatitude, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. The second point today, if you're taking notes, the lowly are broken over their sin. The lowly are broken over their sin. What is those who mourn? This morning is a spiritual morning having to do with our relationship with the Lord. It's not crying for someone at a funeral uh, over a tri- or over a trial that we are facing. This is a person who sees the reality of their sin in their flesh, in their life, and is broken over it daily and finds comfort in the cross daily. Yes, yes. The person who sees their sin for what it is and mourns over their sin. Lord, what is wrong with me? You can see your sin and it brings you to brokenness. The way that you treat people. The way that you treat your spouse. The way you treat your kids. The way you treat the church. The way that you treat your, your co-workers. The way that you treat neighbors. the way that you, The way that you treat God. Broken over this. Mourning over this. Mourning over sin. Blessed are those who mourn. This mourning also does break into mourning over death and sin and what sin has done to us as human beings and how it affects our world, but it primarily has to do with mourning over our sin. And how our sin keeps us from a close relationship with God. It's important to stay in this place. The day that you wake up and are like, I don't mourn over my sin anymore. Yeah, I sinned like a hundred times this week. And um, yeah, hurt that person, did that, did this. No conviction. It doesn't bother you. You are on a dangerous road. Jesus says, Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. They shall be comforted. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says, For godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Worldly grief produces death. They're sorry, but not really. Godly grief produces repentance. We are so broken over our sin, we mourn over it. We can't believe who we are. We can't believe what we've done. And it produces salvation without regret. Actual real change. We step into the sanctification process and God starts to change that heart. Psalm 38, 18, the psalmist wrote, I confess my iniquity, I am troubled by my sin. I hope your sin is troubling you. It's troubling me. I hate it. I want to get away from it. Romans chapter 7, the apostle Paul writes about this. He says, the things I want to do, I don't do many times. And the things I don't want to do, I find myself doing. What is wrong with me? I can't believe who I am. He is broken. He is mourning. He is crushed over the things that he falls into. And the second that you start to walk away from that brokenness, you get prideful, you get arrogant, you get self-righteous. You're not broken anymore over your sin. You can't see your, your sinful nature anymore. That is scary. We do have a new nature in Christ, but sin somehow abides in our bones until we reach heaven, the glorified state. We should be thinking towards the end of our life, after we've been walking with Christ for years, what the apostle Paul thought. He concluded, I am the chief of all sinners at the end of his life. I'm the chief. I am the captain. I am the lead general of all sinners. Why? Because the closer he got to Jesus, the more he could see the sin in his bones. And he mourned over it. But guess what happened? He was comforted. He was comforted by the Lord over and over and over again. They shall be comforted. Godly sorrow is better than worldly joy. Godly sorrow is better than worldly joy. The greatest moments of growth in my life, personally, Pastor Josh, personally, had been my moments of seeing my sin clearly. Clearly. Discovering the grace of God again. It is the most powerful moments in my life to feel the comfort of the Lord after I have done terrible things. After feeling crushed over my sin and broken, can't believe who I am at times. As I was thinking through this sermon this week and I was just reminiscing like, gosh, you know, sometimes I am just, I just can't believe who I am sometimes. Even after walking with God for 20 years, years. How am I still these ways? Especially when we talk about the next point, meekness. I just am shocked that I'm not advancing faster, I guess, sometimes. I want to get there now. But I know the Lord is doing a work in me, and I try to continue to be broken over my sin and mourn over it and go to the Lord and see it for what it is and allow Him to comfort me but to discover the grace of God over and over in those very, very dark moments is so beautiful. And it, it, it gives you such a taste, a deep taste of His grace that you want to run away from sin and just get away from those wicked things as fast as you can. You can't find comfort if you're not broken. Mourning over sin. This is the blessing having to lean on the savior for comfort over and over and over again. Jesus would say to us Matthew 11:28, "Come to me all who are labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted." Finally, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. You don't hear this word very often. That person is meek. You don't hear that very often. Point number three, if you're taking notes, the lowly realize they are mastered by God. The lowly realize they are mastered by God. God alone. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, Being poor in spirit, is the primary fundamental spirit that leads to turn a condition of, a condition of mourning as we become aware of our sin, and then it turn in turn leads to a spirit of meekness. There is a progression here: poor in spirit, bankrupt spiritually, progresses us into mourning over our sin. When we realize the depths of our sin and mourning over it, it produces meekness. Wow. Jesus is an absolute genius. He, to break this down and to stack it in such a way, and then for us to discover it is so beautiful. Meekness is strength under control, mastered by God. All of the strength and power there is, but it is fortified to God and to our neighbor. Meekness is not weakness. That's probably why we don't use the word meek, because we think it sounds weak. But it isn't. It's actually extremely powerful and probably the most strong position anyone could ever have. To be meek is to have strength under control. It is to embody the ability to control all of your strength and power and not use it. That's what Jesus did. The Bible tells us he emptied himself. Became the lowest of all people. He had all the strength. He had all the power. He was the meekest to ever walk the earth. D.A. Carson, the great theologian, said this, A meek person is not necessarily indecisive or timid. He is not so unsure of himself that he could be pushed over by a hard slap to the face with a noodle. (laughs) Oh, I love it. He says the meek person is actually extremely strong and fierce, But it is shielded by humility. It is shielded by servanthood. It is shielded by allowing yourself to be second. That is the most beautiful moment when you see that. Galatians 5.22 talks about this. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. I see... That's what I see meekness as. It is gentleness met with keeping all of your power under control. Against such things there is no law. The word gentle is actually interchangeable for meekness in the New Testament in some of the translations. Verse 24 of Galatians 5, And those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. This is part of keeping in step with the Spirit. It's a product of walking in step with the Lord Jesus. It's a natural byproduct of who we are as Christians. The Spirit will produce this fruit of meekness in us. And as I started breaking down once again meekness and comparing myself, I'm like, oh God, do a work in me, please. Just because meekness can be translated gentle does not mean meekness only belongs to weak or slothful people. A giant man with brute strength, let's just say the brute strength of 20 men, can be meek and gentle. The gentle giant. The meek person is not necessarily an easygoing, blow with the wind type of person. A person can be very prompt and focused, yet still meek. I think of the great executive who is a servant, does not wield his power but you would never know he was the owner of the company because he doesn't throw around his weight. He has all the strength and power he needs and he sees it has all come from God. He is a mild man, mild woman, solid to the core. She's immovable in decisions, but not arrogant. Meekness is not being nice. That's a good quality, but it's not the picture. Meekness is compared to strength again but it is strength under the perfect control of God being mastered by him. This meekness Jesus is talking about doesn't only change our outward demeanor, but it starts in the spirit, in the heart. It is not only being able to control a moment or a moment of great anger externally, but actually not desiring to do it at all. The moment where we feel like getting angry, We know it is wrong and we stop it. That is only something God can do in us. And we need to beg Him to master us. But that is true meekness. You feel the anger stirring and you're able to control it by the power of the Holy Spirit. Begging God to do that work in you. That is true meekness. Jesus did it on the cross. He could have called down legions of angels. He let them crucify him for our sake. He laid down his life. Meekness, the difference between the queen in Alice in Wonderland, demanding everything for herself or off with your head, and Jesus, the Lord of all who chooses to be the servant of all. Wow! The Lord of everything who says, I will take the form of a servant, I will serve my people. The meek person doesn't make demands for his position or her position, his privileges, her privileges, his possessions, doesn't think they deserve anything. They see the sinner they are. They see all the blessings they have received have come from God, and they are very thankful and very grateful. Titus 3.2 says, To speak evil of no one, avoid quarreling, be gentle, show perfect courtesy towards all people. Wow! Wow! Man, we need that in this day, huh? Family, could we just apply this to all social media for now if we can? Just be show perfect courtesy toward all people. Speak the truth in love. Be kind. Why can't we have conversations anymore? I can't believe We just can't talk anymore. That's what we're getting to. We need to beg God to change our hearts and minds. Lord, help me in this. I need your help. The meek person is not sensitive about themselves. Did you know that? Not easily offended. Not so much pride, so focused on self that you have to walk on eggshells around them. To be meek means you are finished with yourself. You are mastered by God. You realize all you have is from him and you are thankful. You don't need or want to throw your weight around. You know who you are. You belong to God. William Secker said this, the purest gold, is the most pliable. The purest gold is the most pliable. I love that. The purest of heart is the most pliable. Lord, mold me, shape me, make me who you are. See if if there be any wicked way in me. Lead me in the way everlasting. Psalm 139. Psalm 3710. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. The meek shall inherit the earth and the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. Jesus was quoting from the Psalms. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Do you know that we're going to one day? We are only even closely meek because of the work of the Spirit in us. But we shall inherit the earth. The Lord will make a new heaven and a new earth one day and we will inherit it and we will be with our God and God will be with his people. He will wipe away every tear. We will mourn no more for sin. We will cheer in celebration for all of his grace and all of his mercy. The lowly man, the lowly woman, bankrupt spiritually, mourning over sin, meek and mastered by God. Blessed is the lowly person. This is Jesus' worldview, isn't it? Opposite of today's world, that's for sure. The world would tell you, be arrogant, throw your weight around, get in there, make this happen. Don't don't go after that demeanor. Don't be second. You do you. You be first. Now, Jesus would say the opposite, and he had all the power and all the glory. He says, you know what? I'm taking the form of a servant. I'm going to teach all these people a lesson. And he has... We have been saved to live for God's glory. Jesus paints a picture, a spiritual law, that true Christians love and will live by. Not because they have to, but because they want to. They love their Father. They love shining for His glory on this earth. Family, I want this for us more than ever, especially during this season. I want this for me. I want God to do this work in my own heart, and my own Life. I want to take the form of lowliness as Christ did. I want to see more of that in my own life. And I would love to see legacy take that form where we become servants of all. And people are just blown away by the way that we handle this world. When chaos is breaking out, they say, man, I find peace in you. You clearly have something going on in there. And it is different from the way everybody else in the world is acting. I want that for us. Let's pray and let's ask God to do that work now. Father, we pray, we ask that you would help us to see the depths of our bankruptcy. We had to file chapter 7 like 30 times, Lord, maybe a hundred times. We are so far in debt in our own sin, there's no way we're getting out and we need you to save us we need you to fill our account with righteousness none of our works are righteousness that that actually pay out anything for heaven we're spiritually bankrupt we need you to save us and Lord i pray for those listening right now would you save them now they know they acknowledge that they are poor in spirit we are begging for bread off of your table. Lord, we are nothing apart from you. Save us. Lord, we're broken over our sin. We see the depths of our sin and we ask please that you would comfort us and that you would heal us and that you would restore us in these areas of sin that we have just been wicked. We've been evil in these areas. Lord, we pray against those things and we ask that You would revive us, resurrect us in these areas, comfort us, O oh Father, please, in these areas. And finally, Lord, we ask that we would take the form of meekness, that we would follow after Jesus, that, Lord, we, Your Spirit would work in us and we would grow. Please, Lord, water these plants. Help us to grow. Cut out the dead wood. Please bring us in closer relationship with you. I pray, Lord, all of the instances that you're bringing to mind, we know where we have not shown even a glimpse of meekness. We've been the opposite. We wield our strength. We throw our opinions around. Lord, we, we act as if we are the ones in charge. Lord, we, we ask for forgiveness. And we ask, Lord, that you would teach us what it looks like. For the meek will inherit the earth. Strength under control. Lord, I pray as well that you would strengthen your saints. That we would be strong on the inside and humble on the outside. Encouraged by you. We need you, Holy Spirit, to lead us. Help us to walk in the Spirit. We pray now in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thanks so much for tuning in today and studying Through Jesus' Sermon. Man, what a great text, huh? I'm really loving these, looking at them again, and really hoping that the Lord will grant us a new view, His view, during this time. Family, love you, miss you, praying for you, excited for us to get back together soon. Don't forget who we are. Don't forget where we came from. And don't forget where we are going. May the Lord bless you and keep you this week. May his face shine upon you. May he bring us low, low for his glory, closer to him. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.